And water that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart. I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. So, tonight we continue through this very naughty subject of the different types of objects that the mind engages as it goes about its day, just doing the simple chores of the day, cleaning the house, preparing food, self-care, taking care, washing ourselves, bathing, clothing, and uh, answering emails. We encounter these different types of objects, as well as in, in the most complicated activities of life, such as the absorption of uh, neither perception nor non-perception, and rocket science, and things like that. <laughs> So let's see, we're on uh, chapter 17, how the mind engages its objects, page 247. And this is an extended version of what was presented in the introduction to this whole section of the book by John Donne. Objects of mind. Having completed the presentation of types of mind in the preceding chapters, we will now discuss how a mind engages its objects. The definition of an object is that which is known by the mind. Boom. That's a good one. Very simple. Very clean definition, right? There's the definition of a thing that which performs a function, such as perpetuating the next moment of its continuum or being and becoming an object of observation by some mind, and an object is that which is known by mind. When categorized in this system and using this terminology, there are four types of objects of mind. Appearing object, observed object, conceived object, and engaged object. And now, remember, we're getting a certain version here by uh, the authors of this book where they're, uh, what was it, they're going along with, uh, so they're going al along with Chapa, which isn't the uh, uh, generally accepted by all traditions of Pramana or lowric class, classifications of mind, or the science of mind, knowing the mind in all traditions. In some traditions, the appearing object and the observed object are not synonymous. But here, for simplicity's sake, the observed and appearing object are synonymous. And every consciousness has both. It's a little bit clunky if you say both, since uh, synonymous implies that they're one and the same. As for the appearing object and the observed object of a non-conceptual consciousness, such as a sense direct perception, I added that, they, 
uh, the appearing and observed objects are the object of non-conceptual consciousness by virtue of their image clearly appearing to that consciousness. Uh, as for the appearing object and the observed object of a conceptual consciousness, they are the appearance that is the direct object of a conceptual cognition. So I'll pause the appearing object and the observed object. So initially we had this notion that there's an appearing, there's an observed object, which is the outer object, and then the appearing object is the uh, sort of reflection of that object in the sense faculty. In the, in the case of a, a perception, which is uh, terminology used here for a direct non-conceptual cognition, such as a sense cognition. And um, so here they're saying that uh, because the image of the appearing object clearly appears to the consciousness as the appearing object, which is what that phrase says. So um, as for the appearing object and the observed object of a non-conceptual consciousness, they are the object of non-conceptual consciousness by virtue of their image appearing clearly to that consciousness. So by conflating them, you get this odd verbiage that uh, says, that goes like the way I read it, but basically the implication is that <clears throat> in the case of a non-conceptual consciousness, the appearing object is an exact um, replication, projection, reflection, something, some terminology of the um, observed object. And so they are identical so that uh, the force of a sense perception, a non-conceptual perception, a direct perception, con cognition, has the power of directly perceiving the observed object is the implication here. As for the appearing object and the observed object of a conceptual consciousness, they are the appearance that is the direct object of a conceptual cognition. So when we have a conceptual cognition, we have an appearance in the conceptual mind that represents the object of that cognition. And that appearance is not a particular it's not a specifically characterized phenomena. It's a general image. It's a, it's a generic image. It's a generally characterized phenomena. It's an idea. It's a concept. All of those are synonymous terms. Um, so the appearing object and the observed object of a conceptual consciousness. The observed, uh, Mary Beth. I have a question about the difference between this in a non-conceptual versus a conceptual consciousness. 
So like, it's the same whatever over there, but the non-conceptual consciousness, I suppose, I mean, in a way, is it sort of like gets the whole picture because they're not putting a concept in there, which we know means that we're sort of like negating things or just narrowing it down somehow so it can fit in our idea of what that concept is. Yeah, here's here's since in this system, the appearing and the observed object are synonymous in both situations of conceptual and non-conceptual. The distinction that you just referred to, that a non-conceptual consciousness is somehow more direct and powerful and true, so to speak, than a conceptual cognition, comes up in a few pages in terms of um, the way that cognition is, uh, let's say, processed. And that is by exclusion as opposed to inclusion that idea of a poha, of exclusion, of eliminating everything that's not the object is the way that conceptual cognition occurs. So when we think of a pot, conceptually we eliminate uh, the, the uh, sort of way to define the process of identifying a pot in our conceptual framework is by eliminating everything that's not a pot. And we don't do that obviously in detail, but we identify parameters that say, well, a pot is this and everything that's not a pot is not what I'm concerned with. So let's see what else they have to say. And then uh, we, we will come to that. And so let's revisit it uh, when we get to there. As for the appearing object and the observed object of a conceptual consciousness, they are the appearance that is the direct object of a conceptual cognition. So a, another type of object is a direct object. And uh, the direct object is um, the direct cause of a cognition. Going back to our different types of causes. Oh, let's see, they are the appearance that is the direct object of a conceptual cognition when its object occurs to it. So when an object occurs to our conceptual cognition, it does so in the conceptual mind as an appearance of the conceived object. That is what we are observing. We observe non, not non-pot, as vague as that might be. Right. <laughs> Derek, should I just clarify? I read this last week, so I'm trying to. I apologize if this is about to come up in the reading, but. Me um, too. <laughs> so, in this instance, when we're talking about non conceptual consciousness versus conceptual consciousness, in both of those, is there in this scheme an actual pot inspiring these consciousnesses? Or can these also include just thinking of a pot when there's not one in front of you? Uh, they will get to that sort of subdivision okay, okay. of a conceptual cognition where uh, it, it can either be an actual pot that you're getting at conceptually 
or it can either be a pot that you're just thinking about generally, coming up with the idea of a pot, or when you conceive of a phenomena that, or some object that doesn't actually exist, such as a unicorn. Okay. So we will get to that sort of subdivision. Uh, as for the appearing object and the observed object of a conceptual consciousness, they are the appearance. They are what appears as the direct object of a conceptual consciousness when its object occurs to it. So whenever we you know, have that conceptual idea of pot, whatever it is that appears to us, to our con conceptual mind as a pot, is the observed object and is also called the direct object of that conceptual cognition. And this was previously explained uh, there. That's the appearance that was previously explained previously to be the linguistic referent. And so uh, they're referring to the process of using language to indicate some other thing where we identify a word with a reality, a phenomena. So we use the word pot or not non-pot to linguistically refer to pot or non-pot, not non-pot. <laughs> Even though the direct object is not in itself a real thing, something involved in a causal process, causal rather, according to the explanation of some earlier Buddhist epistemologists, it is not contradictory for a conditioned thing to be a direct object of a conceptual cognition. So um, this is Emily's note is that the uh, we can we can have a pot in front of us and we can be talking about that pot in a conceptual manner, and it can be the direct object. Um, in in which case it's not really the appearing or can or. Uh, a, observed object so i don't know the the way they've presented this is not in my humble opinion that clear i'm i'm totally confused now by that part because it seems like um i thought that a conceptual cognition <clears throat> what's appearing the, the the object is is a an is an image not a real thing a so-called thing um, so here it's, they're saying a, a conditioned thing means an actual object, right? <laughs> well, the, the, it, it revolves on the term conditioned thing, um, which you and I would both agree is a real thing. Well, I was taking it to be an impermanent Condition, objective dependent origination, blah, blah, blah. That I is agree. what I thought they meant by I thought that's what I that know. Was. I agree. It's, it's unclear the way, in my humble opinion. But if that's what it is, then it should not be a direct it. object of a conceptual cognition, right? I couldn't agree yeah. with you more. Okay. <laughs> okay. Just. So, 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the, 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 that either I'm not understanding it either or this section is unclear. And they conclude by saying, thus the distinction needs to be made between the apparent object and the direct object of a conceptual cognition. So whereas they started off saying it's synonymous and it's the same for both, there really is a distinction. So it's a little bit of an odd paragraph. The conceived object refers to the object in terms of how a person or a conceptual cognition conceives it when apprehending it. And it exists in the case of both a conceptual cognition and a person. <laughs> so this, this gets even weirder. It's like, and a duck. <laughs> In the case of a conceptual cognition and a peacock. Um, for example, a pot is the conceived object of a conceptual cognition or a person thinking this is a pot. The, I, I'm, I've seen this before, but I can't really figure out why they say of a person, of a conceptual cognition and a person. I mean, a person has concepts and a con conceptual cognition, but um, a pot is the conceived object of a conceptual cognition. I mean, maybe it's, it's, a, uh, it's a copy editing mistake and it should say of, of a person thinking this is a pot. <laughs> Probably yeah. that's the case. The only other thing I could think of is that they're saying they're using the second part, the person thinking of the pot as the sort of ordinary example. English language way of saying the first part. In other words, a conceived object that, is a conceptual cognition. Okay, that's a lot of. I.e. I.e., a person thinking this is a pot. So right. that's another way to conceive it. It could be either one. Right. So just to be clear, uh, they're not excluding animals. Animals also have conceptual cognitions. And so when they say persons, there's persons of uh, all, all animals are also persons. The term person does not refer to human beings, bizarrely enough. <laughs> Unless they're, again, if they're just using that as an example, then it might just be saying, okay, a person is thinking of a pot, a duck might not think of a pot, they might think of some other thing. With a different name, they, they might call it something different. Would it help if they said Why where the referent object is not a conceptual object? Like it's referring to a real object in this case. That is, yeah, it would help if they said that. We should write okay. that in. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. Actually, I think, it, I'm not sure, but when in the Napper article, my, my sense is that she sort of divided that the, the um, the conceived and engaged are about how we apprehend something, whereas the other two are how, sort of like what we perceive, and the other is what we apprehend. So in the conceived, we're getting into what we apprehend. Hers is so much clearer. Uh, you know, after we go through this, uh, I, um, I would like to go through her article as a way of summarizing and clarifying a lot of this stuff. And, uh, I guess ideally I could have gone through this and like said, well, let's skip this and read the Napper article instead, but I apologize, I haven't. I think it's so okay. This is, it's, it's... So this is a little complicated, but you know, it sort of like stretches your mind to try to understand things that are presented in different ways. 
maybe. Yeah, no harm. I think it's just, like you say, a stretch. Yeah. Um, for example, a pod is the conceived object of a conceptual cognition or a person thinking, this is a pod. In cases where the way of conceiving accords with reality, such as the conceptual cognition apprehending sound to be impermanent, the conceived object exists. Impermanent sound. Uh, which is not, uh, the, it's not like talking about a particular necessarily here, interestingly. But in cases where the way of conceiving does not accord with the reality, such as a conceptual cognition apprehending sound to be permanent, the conceived object does not exist. The conceived object and the engaged object are synonymous in the case of a conceptual consciousness. So the conceived object and the engaged object are synonymous in the case of a conceptual consciousness. Since non-conceptual consciousnesses do not conceive in such terms as this and such and such, conceived object is not posited for a non-conceptual object. Uh, sorry, consciousness. Sort of by definition, if you're saying non-conceptual consciousness, then it doesn't have a conceptual object. The engaged object exists in the case of a person and of a cognition that accords with reality. A pot is posited both as the engaged object of an eye consciousness apprehending a pot and of a conceptual cognition apprehending a pot. You know, so the, the way I like try to rationalize this whole section is and other presentations of this material, of this particular topic, is that they're all trying to get us to, to um, comprehend that, that uh, there's different ways that the mind takes its objects. And those, those objects can be either similar in certain ways or different in certain ways. But... Um, but that there, there are, there's not like a universal, like we, we don't all experience the same thing, no matter how we access it, conceptually, perceptually, through dreams or divinations or so forth. The engaged object exists in the case of a person and of a cognition which accords with reality, because you can engage, engage with um, the object of a cognition that accords with reality. A pot is posited both as the engaged object of an eye consciousness apprehending a pot and of a conceptual cognition apprehending a pot. So an actual pot can be the object of a conceptual cognition. According to the theory that verbal statements too possess conceived objects and engaged objects, the expressed reference of a verbal statement should be considered to be its conceived object, the expressed reference of a verbal statement, such as the verbal statement, this is a pot, expresses a reference to, you know, something that you're holding. This is a glass. Um, the expressed reference of a verbal statement should be considered to be its conceived object as well as its engaged object. So when you're making a verbal statement, this is a glass. My ver my words are talking about a generic object. Um, 
which is a uh, uh, the concepts way of getting at the engaged object that is the glass. And the actual glass is the uh, engaged object of my tactile sense consciousness. We may wonder, do all instances of awareness have four objects? No, there are many variations. Some types have four objects where others have two or three. A conceptual cognition apprehending a pot has four objects. The appearance as a pot to a conceptual cognition. So when we think of a pot, there's an appearance in our mind. That's the conceptual pot that appears to a conceptual cognition apprehending a, a pot. Uh, is both the appearing object and the observed object. So we're observing that object that appears in our mind of a conceptual cognition apprehending a pot and the pot the real pot so to speak is both the conceived object and the engaged object we're conceiving the real pot as being a, a pot as being a conceptual thing and then we're engaging it it's Wait, a little bit I'm clunky saying, I, I i'm a little confused there are you saying that this is in a conceptual cognition when you say real pot, do you mean a physical object? We're getting at uh, the the sort of or referent object of that conceptual idea of a pot is a real pot. Is it okay? I because I thought it was. I thought that the pot that is the conceived and engaged object is actually it's it, it's not a gener a generality then. Well, it says a conceptual cognition apprehending a pot has four objects. So I took that to be a, a real so-called pot that were Oh, we're I okay, I okay, I thought as soon as you're talking about a conceptual one then you're not really talking about the real pot because in that case it would Normally, like yeah, normally we say that the object of a conceptual cognition is a concept and not the real thing. But they're creating this structure, this this terminology where the concept points to the real pot. So the object of a conceptual cognition is a concept, and the concept refers to the actual pot. And so we're engaging in the actual pot through the conceptual referent. But I, I mean, I have to admit, my mind sort of says, "Well, which pot?" <laughs> you know, it, it, because I, I'm still thinking it's the the meaning generality pot that that they're. The meaning generality pot is the appearing and the observed object, but the referent object is the actual McCoy, Lord. But then, which actual McCoy is there? Actually, I mean, that's what I don't understand. How do you know whether it's the blue? So if pot, it's a regular, the... okay, if it's a regular, the regular McCoy. <laughs> But if it's if it's observed by someone who has never seen a pot before, like a Martian or something, and they can't have a concept of it. Well, uh, we have concepts of things that we've never seen before all the time. We just don't have like a, a memory of combining a, the object with a, sort of a utility and a and a word and so forth. But whenever we see things, even things we don't know what they are, we conceptualize right. them as being right. Oh, but I'm just saying, as opposed to, you know, that's that's how it could, a real thing could be a conceptual thing. We're oh, saying the same I, thing. In the case of the Martian, yeah, I think so. 
Well, I mean, we don't know what Marsh, how Martians perceive, but <laughs> assuming that Martians perceive like we do, just don't know the words, then what they're perceiving, that's a, that would be a non-conceptual right. experience. Right. But, right. So that's a whole different, that's the whole different. Well, there... I'm just saying, as opposed <laughs> to that, that's how the real pot could be a conceptual pot. Oh, I don't No, I don't. Well, I guess I don't see it that way. I think if they're seeing it, if it's actually like visual consciousness, then it's real pot color shape. No concept right. of pot. Right. Right. Emily. Right. Emily. Emily. Um, something that just helped me wrap my head around this little as I pop back to John Dunn's introduction on this, and he includes all this under the heading of images and that this is describing how images are processed by person, you know, people and animals. So yeah, I think that this, all of this is talking about actually interacting with some kind of real external object. But is an image the word they use for what we uh, conceive in our conceptual mind that is not related to an actual object? Like if we conjure up pot, the general generality, the meaning generality is also an image, right? Well, image can be used in those in two different ways. One, it can be used as the meaning generality, or it can be used as the uh, replication of the actual outer object in the sensory faculty. Right, so in this case, it, it, they do use that term also, though, for the meaning generality, so it's 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 very unclear in that in sense. And it's, it yeah. just seemed, looking back at the introduction and reading over this part again, like they haven't yet gone into the nuances of just thinking about a pot that's not actually there. So, that's my sense, but I right. So we're yeah. we're concerned about cognition. So the, what I think what they're saying is. The conceptual cognition is merging with the image of a real object. And in this instance, we're merging a real object with our conceptual cognition in the conceptual area of our mind. I see it, right? We're merging the two. We're linking our words or our concepts to a real object in this case which is emerging i'm beginning to think that we need to go through a different version <laughs> of this in order to get anywhere well we could we can plow ahead it's like we don't it's, it's we don't need to get completely hung up on it <laughs> oh dear did did what i send you have the four objects in it the the thing that you sent me yeah yeah it had yeah it's yeah okay it, here we go yeah. good Let, let's let's try this version and i'll circulate this to everybody i'll do it actually right now where's our uh, zoom world email Zoom. 
Who knew, huh, that objects could be so much fun? <laughs> okay, so this is from a book called Mind in Tibetan Buddhism, and it has it's a translation of a Lorik classifications of mind uh, root texts in a summary format from a, uh, also a Galupa tradition. And at the beginning, it has, it's translated by Elizabeth Knapper, and at the beginning, it has a wonderful introduction by her, where it goes through mind and its types in the sevenfold division that hopefully we'll get through, get to tonight, I hope. And uh, we're going to uh, skip down to here, see if this helps. Sense direct perceivers. Maybe I'll do it this way. So there's these types of uh, seven types of mind, direct perceivers, direct cognizers, uh, non-conceptual cognizers. There's inferential. This uh, There should be an F in there <laughs> instead of inertial. It's inferential cognizers through uh, logical reasoning that has a, a valid a validity to it. Direct perceivers are valid, and inferential cognizers are also valid. These two types are valid. Sorry, number one and two. And then there's subsequent cognizers, which we've recently learned about subsequently. There's correctly assuming consciousnesses that we've also just learned about. Awarenesses to which the object appears but is not ascertained, which in our current text is basically synonymous with, uh, sorry, not um, correctly assuming consciousnesses. What do they call them in our text? The uh, To which the object appears and is not, is a non-ascertained non cognitions, right? Then there's doubting Thomases, and then there's wrong Peters or Christophers. Or Derek's. There's wrong Derek consciousnesses. Okay, direct receivers, knowers which are free from conceptuality and non-mistaken, which tells you right away that not everything that is non-conceptual is also non-mistaken. Right? Uh, to be free from conceptuality means a consciousness deals with its object directly without making use of an internal image. This version is so simple and, and clean and pure. I love it. This is uh, the difference between seeing a pot, directly perceiving sense consciousness of the visual type, and thinking about it, done by a conceptual mental. In the first case, it's a direct contact, whereas in the second, it's the mind dealing with a mental image. <laughs> so um, here they're using the term image as the conceptual idea, as Cynthia said earlier. To be non-mistaken means that there's no erroneous element involved in that which is appearing to the consciousness. Conceptual consciousnesses are necessarily mistaken in this regard. Thus the qualification non-mistaken alone would be sufficient to eliminate them from the category of direct perceivers. Free from conceptuality, though redundant, is specifically stated in order to eliminate the non-Buddhist Vaisheshika view that there are conceptual sense consciousnesses. Okay, so that went a little bit differently than I had hoped. 
Uh, here we go. Non-mistaken also eliminates from the class of direct perceivers those non-conceptual consciousnesses which are mistaken due to a superficial cause of error, such as a default, a fault in the consciousness, the, vision, the sense consciousness faculty, or uh, temporary sickness, or, and so forth. So, uh, like hallucinations or um, defects in the visual or the, sorry, in the uh, sense organs or uh, certain external situations in the environment, such as like seeing water in a desert, right? Okay. <laughs> and, and by the way, this, this, in, this example, is an eye conscious of somebody riding in a boat to whom the trees on the shore appear to be moving. I want you to think about that example and what kind of a culture would use that as an example of a mistaken eye consciousness where they think that when they go along in a boat at a certain speed, it feels like the environment around them is moving towards them. You know, and I got to think that there's like something to do with the fact that we zoom around in cars from day one and we're used to flying around in that way uh, versus people that basically walked their entire lives everywhere. And when they move at a, a faster speed, it like produces this effect that they would use this as an example. I just think that's an amazing phenomena, actually, that they use that as an example. Anyway, direct perceivers are four types. They're sense direct, mental direct. Sense direct are the five senses. Mental direct perceivers are a little complicated, but that includes um, uh, basic things such as um, uh, cognition of the future, knowing other others' minds, you know, supersensory cognitions that arise from uh, perfecting the fourth jhana state. And uh, then there's also this idea that there's a moment of mental direct perception uh, every time that the uh, the result of sense direct perception is brought into the sixth consciousness. It has first a moment of mental non-conceptual non cognition, and then it goes into a mental conceptual cognition. Then there's self-knowing direct perceivers. Are, so self-awareness is for those schools that hold self-awareness to be a, a valid and true uh, phenomena. It's held to be direct in that it's non-conceptual. It doesn't go through an image. A mental image and then yogic direct perception is when there's the direct cognition of the truth of some aspect of reality such as the impermanent of all compounded phenomena or the emptiness of all phenomena um, or the suffering of all uh, contaminated phenomena those so sense direct perceivers are five types given the five senses, and uh, they are produced through the aggregation of three conditions. There's the observed object, which is like the outer object, so to speak. There's the uncommon empowering condition, uh, which uh, these are not the objects, Cynthia. Where's the freaking objects? 
yeah, you have to go quite through quite a lot before you get to the the four. Oh right. Okay. There you go. Right. Okay, so they go through these seven types of consciousness, and I'll circulate this, and we'll go through it. I thought we'd do it on the last class, go through it in detail. Uh, there's also a division of awareness and knowers into three types. You know, first, we had, there's a division into seven types, and now we have three types. There's, so there's different ways of cutting the, the pie, right? of awareness and here we have conceptual consciousnesses which take a meaning generality as their apprehended object remember that term non-conceptual non-mistaken consciousnesses which take a specifically characterized phenomena as their apprehended object and non-conceptual non sorry mistaken consciousnesses which take a clearly appearing non-existent as their apprehended object. An example of a clearly appearing non-existent in this tradition, the most common example is the floaters in the eye. Um, now we know that floaters in the eye are actually existing objects. They're actually little ripples in the uh, vitreous humor of the eyeball. But they, they also use the blue mountain for this one? They use the blue mountain and they use the yellow of uh, somebody who has jaundice, seeing a, a white conch shell as yellow or, or something like that, right? Okay, so defects in perception. There are four main types of object posited for consciousness. There's the object of engagement. That's like what we're getting at, the real McCoy, right? There's the determined object. Uh, which, which I believe would be uh, synonymous with what in this text is called the observed object. Oh, I thought that was the conceived. Okay. Uh, maybe, maybe. I haven't looked at this version in a while. So let's okay. keep that one on hold. You just read through it. So I'll go with you, actually. So that's the object of, of conceptual <laughs> cognition. Well, we'll come to it. Then there's the appearing object which is what appears in the sense faculty. And then there's what's apprehended, what's actually cognized, you know, what, what the consciousness sort of grokks, let's say, to use the common weird phrase as a technical term. The first two refer to the object that a consciousness is actually getting at and understanding. However, there's the qualification of the term determined object. Thank you, Cynthia, is used only for conceptual consciousnesses. Whereas object of engagement is used for both conceptual and non-conceptual. So a conceptual consciousness that has a real um, object of uh, determined object, in that case, the determined object points to a real object of engagement. It also has an object of engagement. So Can I just jump in here for a sec, Derek? Sorry. Yep. So if you just scroll up for a second, back to the conceptual versus non-conceptual in this scheme. So according to this, conceptual consciousnesses, which take a meaning generality as their apprehended objects. So in this scheme, conceptual consciousnesses only engage generally characterized phenomena. Is that a fair way to rephrase that? 
say it one more time conceptual, conceptual consciousness they only are they only engage a generally characterized phenomena no they uh they only apprehend generally sorry characters. apprehend right but that's so, a big difference that, that's a big right. difference between apprehend and engage right what's the difference well because this is yeah what i was going to be asking about is okay they can only apprehend a generally characterized object but that can be the result of engaging with a specifically characterized phenomenon that sort of triggers the generally characterized concept that it then apprehends with. <laughs> like, in other words, a thought, you know, there could be an actual pot there, or there could be a, just a memory of a pot. And either one of those could sort of inspire the apprehension of a generally generally characterized pot by the conceptual consciousness. Well, this is good. I, you know, let's like uh, bring it into the realm of a real example and go through the, the steps so far. Um, but but actually, uh, let's just continue through these four quickly. Okay. And then let's come back and do that. So the first two are uh, sort of similar in that they're what is actually being gotten at the sort of like the objective of the cognition as being uh, an object is that what is that uh, what was it an object is an is the object of cognition of a mind or something what was that damn the definition of an object is that which is known by the mind so an object can be known by the mind either conceptually or non-conceptually when it's non-conceptual, there's only an object of engagement, and when it's conceptual, there's a determined object, and sometimes there's also an engaged object when it's a real phenomenon, right? Okay. Uh, let's see. That's the object of, an engage, of engagement of an eye consciousness. Apprehending blue is blue. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, the object of engagement of an eye consciousness that apprehends blue. So blue is its apprehended object of a non-conceptual cognition. And the object of engagement is the color blue that appears presumably in the space in front of the visual faculty. Both the object of engagement and the determined object of a thought consciousness thinking about blue or blue. <laughs> now they say it this way, but the object of engagement and the determined object of a thought consciousness thinking about blue or blue. The, the determined object of a thought consciousness thinking about blue is the determined object of a thought consciousness thinking about blue is a conceptual idea, is an image, of, a mental image of blue, an, the idea of blue. Uh, whereas the, the, ob, the object of engagement of that conceptual cognition is the actual color blue. And we're getting at it through a, a conceptual referent. 
Um, so there's, using your example, let's say we first see blue with the eye consciousness and the uh, cognition apprehends the color blue that appears as the object of engagement for the eye consciousness and it is a specifically characterized phenomena and it appears in the sense faculty and then the next moment of cognition is is thinking is the uh, mental direct perception of that color blue in which case there's still no determined object there's only the object of engagement is the actual uh, particle let's say of blue in the space in front of the visual consciousness but in this case the uh, appearing object is the sense cognition itself. Um, well, a, a different, let, let's, let me rephrase that. The appearing object of the visual consciousness and the appearing object of the direct mental consciousness is the aspect blue that appears in the visual consciousness. That is the uh, sort of rep, rep, rep presentation, replication rather, of blue in the, the faculty is the appearing object for both the visual faculty and the mental consciousness in its first moment. And so both are apprehended as blue, as an, an object of engagement, a non-conceptual object. And then the third moment, we think, oh, there's blue. And the conceptual consciousness at that point is um, the appearing object for that conceptual consciousness is the idea blue. And we apprehend the idea blue from that. And we conclude that there is an instance of blue in the space in front of our visual faculty. And um, through that, conceptual object, i.e. the determined object of the idea that there's blue there, we are getting at the object of engagement, which is the actual blue, such that if there was a multitude of different colors in front of you and you're focused and you're asked to pick out the blue, you could point your finger at the blue. The latter two types of objects, appearing and apprehended, refer to the object which is actually appearing to the consciousness. They should, they should say, which are actually like in the consciousness, because one appears to it and one is apprehended, and not necessarily to what it is comprehending. And so, what is it comprehending? It's comprehending the object of engagement. Since the actual object, so they used another term, which I've been using, it's the actual McCoy, uh, and that's the object of engagement that appears to direct perception is what it realizes. So direct perception is said to realize accurately and truly and directly its actual object. Um, since the actual object that appears to direct perception is what it realizes, i.e. apprehends, its appearing object, apprehended object, and object of engagement are all the same. Now, when they, when they say the same, it's like, well, if they're the same, why do they have different words for them? It's like, it's the same object, but it appears in different 
sort of locations or in like in phases or something to say that there is the same is is uh is a really sort of odd thing to say it's sort of like uh not that helpful in the example of an eye consciousness apprehended in blue all three are blue <laughs> what's also awkward about these examples is using the blue thing as the example sort of takes away the whole issue of what we perceive of as being a, a thing you know it's like we're not talking about blue gomden we're just talking about blue you know and that makes it kind of tricky as well yeah that is true when they say apprehending blue <laughs> it's like what does that mean like they, they I mean, could I know just this say sort of traditional because i right you see this everywhere but they it's could really just say there is a blue because, there's a blue object <laughs> right i mean sure if you look at the sky and it's blue you can kind of relate to what they're talking about then because it seems sort of like just pure blue I know. they're, they're okay. using the language that that has been developed by going through the collected topics the jujra where uh blue is a real phenomena and the blue gomden is an extrapolation you know right is, it just uh, makes it a little harder in some ways it does, to, it does. Like, <laughs> so the both of those things make it complicated yeah Okay, however, for conceptual consciousness, although the object of engagement and the determined object, so the determined object are the mental conceptual image, right? And the object of engagement is the actual object. Although the object of engagement and the determined object are the actual object, the consciousness is understanding. So, the consciousness, because it's conceptual, is getting at the actual object through a determined object, which is a conceptual image, i.e. blue. For a thought consciousness apprehending blue, the appearing object and the apprehended object are just an image of blue called a meaning generality. Now, and to, you know, even to say like an image of blue implies like the visual, actual visual appearance. But I think here they're really talking about that internal totally. aspect thing. That's totally. my understanding they're, of it. Yes, they're, they are totally referring to a conceptual image of blue. Well, and but, this is what we were trying to get at with the other reading too, is like um, whether you're seeing something blue in front of you or you're just remembering blue or thinking about it either way it's this you're 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 dealing with a conceptual i general conceptual idea of blue in both instances when you get to this conceptual level and, and in both instances you're blue in the face <laughs> <laughs> but through dealing with this whole terminology this threefold division of consciousness and the three Fold division again was conceptual consciousness taking a meaning generality which below they're calling an image a non-conceptual non-mistaken consciousness which takes specifically characterized phenomena as the apprehended and a non-conceptual but mistaken consciousness which takes a clearly appearing non-existent as the apprehended so those are the three uh, types of uh, possible per, uh, perceptions, no cognitions, that they're 
dividing up the world of cognition into. It centers on differences in the appearing or apprehended objects of the different types of consciousnesses. All thought consciousnesses, so thought consciousness means, i.e. conceptual, necessarily take as their appearing object a meaning generality. So meaning generality, the idea of blue or a pot, is the idea of pot that appears in the conceptual consciousness. A meaning generality is a permanent phenomenon. It does not disintegrate moment by moment. It doesn't mean it remains the same all the time, but it doesn't like change radically, meaning instantaneously, as do impermanent phenomena. And it's a negative phenomena, which uh, that means it's an image which is a mere elimination of all that is not what we're getting at which is this idea of not, not pot. And the idea that we get out conceptual phenomena by exclusion. And so it's a negative way as opposed to the objects of non-conceptual direct cognition are positive phenomena that are apprehended in an inclusive manner where we, we uh, the, the aspects of that phenomena are included. Um, as opposed to excluding that which is not it. Thus, for example, the meaning generality of pot that appears to a thought consciousness apprehending pot is not an externally existent pot with all its own uncommon features. Again, this term uncommon means unique. It's a clunky way of saying that, but just a general image of pot, which is described negatively as being an appearance of the opposite of that, which is not a pot. The relative impoverishment, <laughs> a sort of weird term to use in this, in this situation, but uh, the, de the uh, disintegration, let's say, the relative or uh, lesser powerful, less powerfulness, the relative impoverishment of such an image, that is a general image, in comparison to the richness of the appearance of the object involved in direct perception, which is a positive phenomena apprehended in an inclusive manner, is the reason why direct perception is so much more highly valued than thought. However, in order to understand things which we are now unable to perceive directly, we must rely on thought, for it provides the means to train the mind so that direct perception can eventually be developed. And, and once again, you know, this is the whole premise of uh, basically of Buddhism is that by understanding reality conceptually we can and then um, working with that in some way we can then experience reality non-conceptually and that it's only the experience of reality non-conceptually that is transformative. So that's the that's the hypothesis of Buddhism and you, you could debate that as well you know uh, uh, because it's sort of assumed here that that's taken as a truth. And you could say, well, uh, intellectual understanding can be quite as true, could be just as transformative, you might say, but not, not according to this tradition in the case of the true nature of reality. It might be the case in terms of like uh, relative phenomena. But.
Thus, in this system, although thought is finally transcended by direct perception, its importance as the means to get to that goal is recognized and valued. And you could also argue that we'll, you could get to, to direct perception of reality without all the intellectual bullshit that we go through. <laughs> and obviously, a lot of traditions and people do follow that path. It's a common Western misunderstanding of Buddhism that because external objects cannot appear directly to thought, but it must be realized by an image, thought has no relationship to objects, etc. So we've seen uh, a lot of the rest of this, but um, hopefully that way of simplifying the objects of cognition is helpful. Maybe, and then based on that, we can return to this and sort of uh, plow through it, understanding and allowing its sort of uh, maybe less clear way of expressing things, but uh, get on to the additional topics, hopefully that it goes through, if that's okay. So on page 248, I'd like to start on the second full paragraph. Uh, we may wonder, do all instances of awareness have four objects? No, there are variations. Some have four objects where others have two or three. Conceptual cognition apprehend, apprehending a pot has four. The appearance of a pot to a conceptual cognition apprehending a pot is both the appearing object and the observed object of a conceptual cognition apprehending a pot. So in this framework, I would say that they're using the term observed object as um, the apprehended object in the, in the other scheme. And I, I was actually describing it as the outer object earlier. My apologies. In, so I in think my chart that I was working on, more, I, yes, I noticed the apprehended. that, yeah. yeah. Good. Thank you. Yeah, we got to look at your chart now. I, I, it's not ready yet, but I'm working on it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, refine it. And, uh, uh, share with me and let's see if we can get some other translations so we get a little flexibility. Good. Um, uh, let's see. Is both the appearing object and the observed object of a conceptual cognition apprehending a pot? And the pot is both the conceived object and the engaged object. So conceived is synonymous with the determined object in the, in the, the other reading we just looked at. And uh, the engaged object was has the same terminology of a conceptual cognition apprehending upon an eye consciousness apprehending yellow has only three objects. It has uh, <laughs> three objects, all of which are yellow. <laughs> um, the appearing object, the observed object, and the engaged object of an eye consciousness apprehending yellow. The appearing object is the aspect of yellow that appears in the visual sense uh, faculty. The observed object is the apprehension of yellowness in the sense consciousness. And the engaged object is the, uh, uh, the uh, flash of yellow, whatever, in the space in front of the visual consciousness. Conceptual cognition apprehending a rabbit's horn has just two objects, the appearance as a rabbit's horns to a conceptual cognition apprehending a rabbit's horns is both the appearing object and the observed object. So the appearing object is the observance 
sorry, it's the appearance rather of a rabbit's horn. We have an idea of what a rabbit's horn might look like in our conceptual consciousness. And then uh, the, appre the apprehended rabbit's horn is what the cognition, the conceptual cognition observes. Even though rabbit's horn is the conceived object and the engaged object of that conceptual cognition, it, it doesn't exist even conventionally. Now, this is a difference from the other system. The other system says that there's no uh, engaged object of a conceptual cognition. There's just a determined object. But, but uh, hopefully we got some sort of flexibility between all the different objects that we can um work on thank you for dean for joining us by the way Re dean says related to where errors can occur in direct perception representation in the mind that was probably in relation to something that we're no longer talking about specifically related to where errors can oh that was the like the floaters and so forth and permanent versus permanent specifically characterize equals impermanent yep good thank you okay so moreover in the case of objects there are also objects as cognized you know so uh, just to flesh things out there's other terminologies in the realms of objects there's uh, explicit implicit focal and so forth a pot is the object as cognized for an eye consciousness apprehending a pot and for a conceptual cognition apprehending a pot a permanent sound is the object is cognized for a direct perception and for an inferential cognition realizing sound to be impermanent likewise permanent sound is the object is cognized for a conceptual cognition apprehending sound to be permanent and a rabbit's horn is the object is cognized for a conceptual cognition apprehending a rabbit's or just sort of playing with the various terms, I guess. Thus, in the case of a cognition that accords with reality, since things are the way it apprehends them, its objects as cognize exist. And in the case of a mind that does not accord with reality, since things are not the way it apprehends them, its object as cognized do not exist. As for the explicit and implicit object, the explicit object of a cognition is an object that appears to or whose image arises in that cognition. The implicit object of a cognition, although an object of that cognition does not appear or arise as an image in that cognition. So a cognition that applies something that is not currently appearing to it. For example, since a conceptual cognition apprehending a pot explicitly realizes the pot and implicitly realizes the exclusion of non-pot. Oh, it is said that the pot is the explicit object of the conceptual cognition apprehending a pot and the exclusion of non-pot is the implicit object of the conceptual cognition apprehending a pot. So uh, every object that we identify as the object of a cognition is its explicit object and it implicit that that cognition itself implicitly um, identifies everything that's not the explicit object by negating it to identify the explicit object just sort of clunky ways of referring to these things right um, 
Likewise, an inferential cognition realizing that sound is impermanent explicitly cognizes sound as impermanent and implicitly cognizes sound as not permanent. So it is said that sound is impermanent as the explicit object of that inferential cognition and sound is not permanent as the implicit object of that inferential cognition. As for the focal object, there are different ways of uh, positing this depending on context and maybe the basis in which the mind acts to eliminate false superimpositions, or it may be the basis or ground on which various false superimpositions are imputed by the mind. For example, sound is the basis on which an inferential cognition, realizing sound to be impermanent, acts to eliminate false superimpositions. And it is the basis or ground of false superimpositions imputed by a conceptual cognition apprehending sound as permanent. So just some more examples of uh, not very helpful scheme of focal object. Therefore, it's said to be the focal object of both. Also, the, both the inferential cognition realizing sound to be permanent and the conceptual cognition realizing, sorry, apprehending sound to be permanent must be posited as cognitions who ways, whose ways of apprehending are directly contradictory, having observed the same focal object sound. So it's like, focal object similar to direct object. In general, whether an instance of, of awareness has realized a given object is determined on the basis of whether it has obtained that object. It is those states of mind that remain steady, like a tent stake planted into dry ground that realize their object, but minds that are unsteady cannot. There are also different modes in which cognition of an object takes place, such as directly cognizing through perception, such as an eye consciousness cognizing the front of the pot in front of it and cognizing by means of inference or reasoning, such as mind cognizing from afar, the presence of fire in a mountain pass through directly seeing smoke rising from that place. Does an image appear to sense cognition? We'll go through this quickly. Uh, the Vaibhashikas rather say that when an eye consciousness apprehends its object, an image does not appear. So this whole idea of the, an image appearing in the sensory con consciousness, the sensory faculty rather, is an invention of the Sautrantika school. The Vaibhashikas hold that the sense faculty contacts the sense object itself. And so uh, instead, the eye consciousness apprehends its object nakedly without an image. The other Buddhist schools beginning from Samtrantika up to the higher system say the consciousness consciousness sees by means of an image appearing to the mind. Also, the Vaishbashikas accept that the object of visible form and so on appears to the sense faculty. Uh, though the sense, though since the consciousness lacks form, it cannot have an image of the form appearing in the manner of a reflection, and and this whole thing of like the uh, the step where a material phenomena uh, has an impact on a, a consciousness, non-material phenomena, ends up being like uh, problematical. Um, let's see.
this for this reason they do not accept that an image of the object just as blue or yellow appears to the consciousness subschools of those who accept that the consciousness bears images explain this in different ways some say that while the image appearing to a consciousness is an image in that consciousness it is not consciousness itself <laughs> which is a little bit of uh, a conundrum others say that because it is an object image in that consciousness it is consciousness itself those so who if accept... they say it's not does that mean it's neither matter nor mind i was not clear what they what they implied from from this context but uh i don't i don't think so i think they would say it's still matter it's weird it's like you would have like a something in your eye <laughs> i don't know it's an odd thing to say i mean the whole you know the whole uh, duality of mind body presents uh, continual problems those who accept sense consciousness to have an image called the image of the object that appears to the sense consciousness, the object image. Consider the example of an eye consciousness apprehending a form which has two parts, a part that is the appearing image of the external form and a part that is clear cognition experiencing itself. The first is called the object image of the eye consciousness since there's no difference between this <laughs> How can they say there's no difference between this? Don't they have to say uh, there's... Can you guys hear me okay? Yes, uh, fine. Sorry, Dean is not has lost audio. Not sure where Dean is joining us from this evening. Uh, but sorry about that. The rec uh, recording is happening, so... Looks like we lost Dean. <laughs> Oh, well, no audio, no no point in staying on. Um, consider the example of an eye consciousness apprehended, a form which has two parts, a part that is the appearing image of the external form and a part that is the clear cognition experiencing itself, a self-aware uh, cognition. The first is called the object image of the eye consciousness, since there's no difference between this, the eye consciousness apprehending a form, and an image of form appearing to the eye consciousness apprehending that form. So there's no difference between the eye consciousness that apprehends the object and the appearance of that object in the eye consciousness. The object image is the eye consciousness itself. They're not different phenomena. In the case of those who, who hold that the aspect image is not a physical entity, but is in the consciousness. It's not a separate thing. It's not a separate phenomena. Uh, let's see. What is what is meant by the phrase an image appearing to the eye consciousness is is that the eye consciousness arises from its own cause in the image of the object. There is no separate thing that arises as an image other than the eye consciousness itself. The second, the part that is clear cognition experiencing the eye consciousness, is called the subject image of the eye consciousness. So we're getting into what Dun Dun talked about a little bit earlier, where there's like an an object, there's an appearing object and a subject object, a subject 
appearing objects. <laughs> um, According to those who accept reflexive awareness, there's no difference between this and a reflexive perception experiencing the eye consciousness. So basically what they're talking about here, just to step back and like try to figure out what the hell they're talking about, is that if we say that there's a replication of the outer phenomena in the sense consciousness, in the sense faculty, um, and that sense faculty is um, what gives rise to the consciousness. And if the consciousness is directly apprehending the image that's uh, cast into the sense faculty, then you either you either have a situation where the sense consciousness is apprehending the sense faculty or the sense consciousness is itself uh, sort of takes on the um, aspect. But in either either way you have uh, a duality in the sense uh, system where you have the sense system uh, receives the aspect of the outer sense of object, such as the color blue on a blue gomden in front of you, uh, projects into the eye um, faculty, which is a subtle, which is subtle form that is in the shape of a blue Utpala flower that resides somewhere in the eyeball. And that faculty is, is said to uh, take on the um, aspect, take on the characteristic of the blue phenomena. That is its actual object, or its engaged object, let's say. So it, it gets sort of convoluted, but it's like, how does sense perception actually happen, right? If there's a sense consciousness that arises from the meeting of a sense object and a sense faculty, does the sense consciousness only see the object and not the faculty? So what, what part of the consciousness is perceiving the object? You know, so they're, they're basically coming up with this idea, well, that there's, there's two parts to it. There's the appearance of the outer object in the sense consciousness, and then there's the clear apprehension quality of consciousness in sense consciousness that's apprehending that that aspect. You know, so if, if you have this idea that sense consciousness involves the cognition of an object that's separate from oneself, or uh, sorry, separate from the sense faculty, let's say, such as like you could be looking at your arm, so it's not like separate from yourself, so to speak, whatever that means. But but somehow there's this uh, activity going on in your sensory system, and how do you explain it? What uh, 
No matter how you explain it, there ends up being this duality between the clear apprehension quality of consciousness and the apprehended aspect of the, the object. So they're just sort of in a convoluted way trying to describe that. Um, and, and the last sentence is, According to those who accept reflexive awareness, there's no difference between this and a reflexive perception experiencing the eye consciousness. Meaning that if we were able to be aware of eye consciousness without an object, it's the same as being aware of eye consciousness of an object, of an eye object. <laughs> I don't know, it gets a little nebulous pretty quickly, doesn't it? Something very simple. Uh, both the Sotrantikas and the Chittamatras agree in maintaining that in the phrase, the object, that, sorry, the object image of an eye consciousness apprehending blue, in that phrase, the object refers to blue, an image refers to the observed object of an eye consciousness apprehending blue that arises in the image of blue. Nevertheless, they also disagree in the following way. So they they agree that um, the object refers to blue, and the image refers to the observed object of an eye consciousness apprehending blue that arises in the image of the blue. So there's an out there's an there's a object and there's an object image. There's the outer object and there's the image that the outer object presents, projects into, or that the sense faculty somehow replicates of the outer object. Well, actually, aren't they, I'm sorry, aren't they here saying they agree that there's a... They're going to disagree in a second. There's, there's something in the consciousness that they agree on, and there's, and that they agree about the observed object being an image of blue. So aren't both of those not the, the actual object itself, but just one is sort of the con eye consciousness image, and the other is the uh, what was translated by the sense faculty? Well, let, let's go through it and yeah. see how they okay. describe it. But that is part of the question, big part. The Sautrantikos assert that in the case of an eye consciousness having a visible form's image, such as a blue gomden, it, the eye consciousness, arises from the external material form as its cause, the image of the blue gomden arising in the eye consciousness. The Chittamatrans, who are famous for not believing in external phenomena, assert that it arises in the nature of an image through the force of latent potencies within the mind stream as its cause. Right, so if you, there's no external phenomena to act as the uh, object condition, then why did it happen? Also, those who accept external objects say that when blue is seen by an unconsciousness apprehending blue, that blue-like image itself that appears to it is projected inwardly by the blue, just as when, for example, the design of a seal is stamped on a piece of paper. That design itself is fixed on the paper from the side of the seal. 
So there's this notion of like the outer object impressing itself upon the sense consciousness as if the sense consciousness had like this subtle form that could be molded, right? And uh, where the hell was that? Um, for if that similar image itself were not an image projected by the external object, then this would entail the fault that an eye consciousness apprehending blue would arise even in places where there is no blue, if it didn't actually have that outer condition. Those who do not accept external objects say that the blue-like image itself that appears to the eye consciousness is not projected inwardly by the blue. Instead, like the appearance of blue in a dream, it appears through the force of the ripening of latent potencies within the continuum of the mind. But, like, where did those come from? Anyway, Cynthia? Is, is it fair to say, then, that the difference in the views is whether or not there's the engaged object? Yes, that's right. The engaged object being the so-called real McCoy outer object. That's right. And and they don't get into the additional quandary here, which uh, we'll see in the tenets uh, when we go through the tenets of the different schools of like when we apprehend the color blue, is that one phenomena? And does it cast one aspect in our eye consciousness? Or is the color blue of a blue gomden or a blue patch of paint on a wall? Is it multiple objects? And do they cast multiple images in the eye sense system? Or do they cast one? So does many cast many or does many cast one? Or does one cast many or does one cast one? Wasn't that in the like Chandrakirti or one of the things that we studied long ago? It is, right. That's one of the refutations, right? Which, you know, is a good reminder, thanks to Cynthia, of like, basically, as you drill down further and further into how cognition happens, you know, initially it's like, okay, we set up a system where there's sense organs and objects and we give them names and they relate to each other and they perceive each other. And okay, there, there's this... As this this aspect that appears in the consciousness and that it's transferred to mental consciousness and we think about it. But the uh, functionality of that simple explanation really breaks down pretty quickly into an illogical mess. The Vibhashikas say that forms and so on are seen nakedly by the physical sense faculty that functions as a supportive visual cognition, that there's no need for an image to act as a link between the object and the subject. You know, theirs initially seems primitive, but <laughs> then it, you know, it begins to sound sort of, you know, has a simple beauty to it. Uh, so it is not the case that the sense consciousness sees the object. The I sees the object. Rather, for example, when a pot is seen, the particular individual pot right in front of one is seen nakedly by the active sense faculty. You know, whereas in the Sautrantika, the sense faculty doesn't see the object. The sense faculty replicates the object and the sense consciousness sees the object. It's just an interesting distinction. Definition uh, of what is seeing. Yeah. Um, and when a visible form is seen by an active eye sense faculty, it is said that the eye, the eye consciousness 
apprehends or knows the form, thus the distinction is drawn between seeing and knowing. So the eye faculty sees the, the form, but the sense consciousness knows it. Sautrantikas, on the other hand, draw no dis such distinction between seeing and knowing, for they say such things as that which knows the visible form is that which sees that form. Thus they consider there to be no difference between seeing and knowing. Uh, the Vaibhashikas then respond that according to the explanation of the Sautrantikas and others, if the eye consciousness alone sees visible forms, then since the consciousness is non-obstructive, there would be the fault that it must see even visible forms that are not that are obstructed by walls and so on. See, if you say that the eye consciousness sees forms, since the eye consciousness is not material, why? how could material forms obstruct it? <laughs> it's an interesting response. That's, that's when you say, sorry, it's too late in the day, we got to go. <laughs> Love to discuss that further with you some well, other time. But there's also the aspect that we can see I mean, if you look at the distinction between conceptual and non-conceptual, you can have a conceptual notion of blue or or of whatever it is we're talking about seeing without actually seeing it, right? Yeah. Yep. So it's similar, it's similar in some way. It's yeah. not the same, but it's similar to what they're talking about. Yeah, it, it almost makes the, reveals that the eye sense consciousness, knowing the the object is sort of a conceptual almost a concept anyway uh presenting the views of the vibhashikas the treasury of knowledge meaning the root verses says they say the eye acting as a basis sees forms not the eye consciousness based upon it these because forms that are behind barriers are not seen also clarifying the meaning of the treasury of knowledge which is a commentary on it by pretty somebody booty or something it says big booty according to those who say it is the consciousness since the consciousness has no obstructivity consciousness would arise even regarding something concealed but it does not so this proves that the eye sees not the consciousness the vibhashika say that the image of either the subtle amid atoms so let's get into more complexities like how do you know when we see a blue are we seeing atoms or conglomerates says that the uh, say that the image of either the subtle atoms or their aggregations their aggregation does not appear to the eye consciousness and that although the eye consciousness does not know subtle atoms subtle atoms individually it explicitly knows a gross mass of aggregated subtle atoms for explicitly we do not see an individual hair or a grain of sand when it is placed separately all by itself far away but we explicitly see a mass of many gathered together Jitaris says, consciousness that has arisen from a sense faculty directly knows aggregated subtle atoms. The masters maintain that this is the view of treatises of the Kashmiri by Bashikas. The same master's other book, his uh, bestseller, says, in the position of these, i.e. by Bashikas, the same as that of the is the position the same as thy side Trantikas? Actually, I'm going, to, I'm going to skip that quote and see if we can finish this section, which is not going to be possible. <laughs> oh, well. 
this is this is the best part of the book. We might as well take weeks going through it. You have to stop at nine sixteen. Now, what's the significance of nine sixteen? Is that like your birthday or something? <laughs> nine sixteen is merely a number. It's uh, merely a name. Uh, let's see. Thus, so skipping that quote, does the Vaibhashika say that when a sense consciousness realizes its object, it realizes it nakedly without any mediation by an image in response to how Trantikas and other schools focus on establishing sense consciousness as endowed with an image on the understanding that if the sensory cognitions are proven to possess object images, then it is easy to understand that other cognitions induced by them must bear an image of the object which I think they're talking about, like, how does then uh, mental consciousness perceive sense consciousness, sense images, sense objects? You know, if, if, if you say that, well, there's this image replicated in the sensory system that the sense consciousness sees or knows, and the mental consciousness also sees and knows, um, you have a, a way of explaining how there's a, a moment of mental sense direct perception before conceptuality kicks in. Whereas if you have the Vibhashika system where the sense consciousness actually contacts the object, clearly the mind is not doing that. So how does the mind then have direct uh, cognition? The, the mental sense faculty cannot have a sort of explanation of sense direct cognition. Um, furthermore, they assert that when the sense consciousnesses determine their objects, they do so with images, for if they were to cognize their, homage, their image objects in a clear manner without images, this would apply that like consciousness itself, those very objects would have the nature of clarity. So um, matter would be consciousness, basically. Those who accept consciousness to be with images consider that the way in which a sense consciousness cognizes its object is as follows. When one looks at a pure crystal that reflects a color, such as when it is placed on a colored surface, although both the color and the crystal are alike in being seen, the crystal is cognized as appearing from its own side and the color by way of a reflection. So this ref this uh, appearance of a color in a clear crystal is similar to the image appearing in the sensory faculty, right? Um, the Sautrantikas and others who accept that sense consciousness does have images agree that in this way an image similar to the object appears without an intermediary to the sense direct perception, whereas visible forms, sounds, and so on appear in the manner of a reflection. When they say the image of the object appears to an eye consciousness, they understand this to mean that a specific eye consciousness arises in the image of its corresponding object, and they maintain such an image of the object that appears. So the eye consciousness is nothing separate from the eye consciousness itself. So the eye consciousness basically takes on the aspect of the object. Skipping the quote, 
one might ask if the Sautrantikas accept the consciousnesses endowed with images, then what is the difference between them and the Chittamatras? The Sautrantikas and the Chittamatras do not differ in denying that consciousness lacks images and in declaring that it has images. They agree in that, but it is taught that they disagree about whether there exist or do not exist material forms that are bundles of aggregated atoms that have natures different from that as consciousness. Uh, let's see, so I'll skip the remainder of that paragraph. According to the traditions that assert external objects, even though blue and an eye consciousness apprehending blue are different substances, Nevertheless, blue and the reflection cast by blue, which is in the nature of consciousness, or the image of blue are similar in that they are cause and effect. Therefore, referring to the arising of an image similar to blue as blue appearing is legitimate. Blue appearance or blue appearing. And, and thus we get the idea of the Madhyamakas of appearances, of mere appearances, right? And we're sort of building towards that in all of this. Um, therefore, uh, sorry, they say that just this suffices for explaining that a blue object is also sensed or experiencing. Uh, let's see, skipping the quote, the two quotes, as long as one accepts the existence of external objects, one must definitely accept sense consciousness to arise in the image of the external object. For those who do not accept this, there will, would not exist any likeness that when it appears clearly constitutes the color, the, sorry, the clear appearance of the external object. So although they might imagine themselves to be accepting cognition of the external object, they will not be able to posit anything that represents external reality. This is what Sautranta explains in the above, sorry, Shantarakshita explains above. Being a Yogacara Madhyamaka, Shantarakshita accords with the Chittamatra system when it comes to presentations of the conventional level of reality, which is that the conventional level of reality phenomena are not um, material. It's important to understand that the above statement is being made from such a standpoint. So, I don't know, that was just sort of like an exploration of some of the nuances of uh, cognition based upon having laid out this a system that tries to explain what cognition is and how it works. How do images appear to sensory cognition? We will come back to next week, as well as hopefully the seven types of topology. How come there's flies already here in my room? How did the fly appear? Is this like magical birth or birth from moisture or I mean, there's, it's just like there's nothing in this room. I think and insects then, are supposed to be the moisture one. Yeah. Maybe eggs, I don't know. Or warmth or something. Warmth and moisture, I think, yeah. Got him. No, I didn't. I wouldn't do that. Not on video, at least, right? <laughs> and isn't the, the what Trumper used to say, wasn't it, that the, the gotcha is the problem? even more than the, I mean, as much as the killing, the gotcha is the problem. <laughs> the gotcha is the problem. That's, you know, a, funny, the, that's a funny phrase. The, the you know, it's that the, captcha, the captcha is the problem. 
what a funny word that is. What the hell is a captcha? Explain that They're to you. Born to hunt. And yeah. Kill. Any uh, captchas to conclude with? Any comments? I have one question. So would the for Chittimatrans, would there only be conceptual consciousness? Oh, that's a great, that's a great question. Let's see. That's a great question. I, I don't think I've ever seen that addressed. What a cool question. Well, I don't know for sure, but isn't it something that we still, even though it's not, there's no actual physical substance posited there, there's still the, the experientially, we're still creating a subject-object uh, duality you know, that, that we experience things as if they were and how does that differ in the world where there's no external forms? How does that differ from conceiving of the object? I, I would say yes, that, that all cognition is conceptual, but I don't know. That's a great question. Cool. Let's think that about that. Isn't that what that split eggist stuff is all about? The, the you know, yeah, like yeah. how, how is it that we perceive as if there's duality when it is all mind. Isn't that what those different schools were trying to figure out? Yeah, but they don't they don't actually say is it is it conceptual or not? I think uh, the whole idea of con conceptual versus non-conceptual falls apart if there's no real external object. In a sense, yeah, but I wonder if it's that you still have the 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 sense consciousness is basically that apparatus within the mind that projects what we you know sensory experience which we interpret as being external so i don't know whether that could be that there's still a sort of a the five sensory consciousnesses are the projectors kind of things who, who do they project to and what do they project well that's this whole business that's the part that's so um bizarre is that why do we still perceive you know duality if if there is none but supposedly that's what's happening right well i think emily's question gets out to gets to are there are there different types of projection that go on in the non-material world is is yeah. what we normally call conceptual projection is that different than than non-material sensory cognition <laughs> you know sensory cognition in the absence of uh the actual object is you're con you're perceiving a determined or conceptual object the whole time right so i think it has to be conceptual does this tie into chapter four on on the valid versus mistaken? Yeah, because I mean, isn't the eye consciousness a direct perceiver, and so it's it's a valid cognition, so it understands impermanence. Whereas when we go to the meaning generality, it turns into a permanent phenomena. So it 
so I'm thinking of this in terms of in that reflex. I the thought of reflex was thinking like a body reflex, like a reflex reaction. The eye is like reflexive. It, it just reflect. It's like a reflex, like tapping your knee, like right. autonomic nervous systems. Right. So I was looking at this more from a data perspective. It, they're trying to. I don't know if this is accurate, but like video, video on um, digital video technology. Mm -hmm. Like when I refer to errors, mm. like you're taking in information, you have to process it. It also gets stored in memory. Mm -hmm. So it, it comes in. So, and their sampling rates, like mm -hmm. the eye could be faster at sampling than the brain. Mm -hmm. So there could be errors that occur. And another thing that they do in video technology, because of data and the amount of memory required, we do compression technology, right? Right. So, like, if you have subsequent cognizers, you, you is the brain compressing the information as it comes in for better storage? And that means, in order to compress, it means you have to impute things. It's like you leave yeah, out information for sure. So you don't You're have to store as much information. And so their errors can occur there too. So, so that was my thinking about this is that what they're trying to get at is basically in our perception of reality and going from our object to our, our experience of that object, errors can occur along the process. And another thing that it get, has to get converted to this meaning generality, right? So but what, if starts, there, what if there are oh, no specific... What if so there like are it, no real specifically characterized objects for data? What if the data doesn't exist as separate and real from the uh, observer? Uh, I, I think that what you're going into emptiness now with with like ultimate reality versus conventional. Well, we're going into Chittamatra view of reality, which is mind only. Okay, I didn't think much about that one. But another thing that came in too, but another thing is is in, in video technology, um, devices have to have a, a threshold of photons, for example. Uh -huh. So if there's a few too few photons coming in, yeah. it won't perceive it, right? Yeah. So th that was that conglomerate of that, I think this right. technology, yeah. where, where you have to have enough, the aggregation of, of atoms coming in. Right. In order to proceed, anyway, I'm throwing. I'm just going off the deep end, but okay, I'll stop. Oh, no, these but, are these are really helpful uh, sort of aspects of the whole cognitive system that are uh, sort of brought out or revealed more clearly by the uh, experience of all this technology that you're referring to. It's really helpful. Yeah, I hope. Well, data storage is huge, right? We only have finite memory, so we have to like make mistakes and i it goes back to what you were saying i thought about the buddhist in general our the whole thing about distortions and afflictions and emotions and our cognitive distortions where we're basically you know mistaken reality anyway so mm -hmm. and anyway so the, in technology when we store data and stuff errors can occur all over the place so i was thinking and it has to be turned into a meaning generality at the same time just don't create the wrong mistakes <laughs> uh, anyway how do you yeah right 
I guess that's what the Buddha does, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it's you know it's it's sort of uh, more arguments for the breakdown of the whole model in some way as a as a sort of tight functioning ship, but I don't I don't know it's it's helpful as a way of uh, thinking about what's what's going on in the in the whole system, particularly data storage, data compression, data retrieval. You know, when we remember something, we remember a different version of it than uh, what we experienced at the time. That's for sure. We've all been convinced of that over and over again. So, and errors, errors, errors in perception, errors in cognition, errors in retrieval, for sure. And we fill in, right? When we when we have error, we assume we just like um, uh, mush things up. Well, it must have been this, because what else could it have been? No, in the Chittimatra system, what would an error be in perception? It's not really. Uh, it, it's more like if it's all really a, a projection of mind, then is it really an error? There's nothing there to. Right. There's with. no. There's no correct version that. You right. Have it's all error, error right? right? Yeah. yeah. It's just all layers sense. of error. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, nothing. I think it's nothing. And statistics, nothing is perfect. So it's never perfect, right? I think there's a there's a perception that the mind's statistical in nature. But the point being is that the better we get at things, it's like when you have a bell-shaped distribution, the more precise our measurement, the more peak the distribution is, and we start converging to the actual value and our spread and our thinking gets tighter and tighter. So basically, maybe that's what it is, is that process of, anyway, I'm going okay, off. Yeah, yeah, it gets more and more accurate by virtue of that. But right. I liked what you said that nothing is perfect. I think nothing is very is totally perfect. One of one of my daughter's first email <laughs> addresses was there is no perfection at yahoo.com. <laughs> but nothing is is perfect. That which is nothing is perfect. Anyway, Thank you very much, everyone. And thank you, Dean, for joining us and for uh, your input, contribution. Thank you for that. And let's dedicate the marriage. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the current, uh, stormy waves, rather, of birth, death, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be the spell. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. And uh, today is the uh, 38th uh, anniversary of the Parinirvana of the Vidyadara Chogam Chumpa Rinpoche. So, to the Vidyadara, here, here. <laughs> Thank you. See you soon. Thank you, Derek. <laughs>